So I'm going to spend the next three weeks talking about a riveting story from the Old Testament, and it is the story of Queen Esther. It's uh, ten chapters long, and I want to tell it in three parts, and today's the first one. And I'm so inspired by this story. I know you will be too. If you haven't heard it before, if you haven't, you really missed out on something. Uh, it's a tremendous book. Um, so let's begin with a, a prayer this morning, if you will bow with me, please. Lord, speak to me that I may hear, and through me that we all may hear, afresh and anew this, this story of old that is your word for us. And having heard it, help us to believe that you are great and good and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So just quickly, as we go today, I'm going to be reading the scripture through the sermon, not at the beginning. But if you want to turn in your, uh, in your pew Bibles to page 444, I'll be looking at chapters 1 and 2, some selected verses of Esther. But I can tell you a few quick things to, uh, to set the stage for you about this story. And it happens in, in Persia, in Susa, a city, a capital city, of what is then the Persian Empire, a very vast superpower in the Middle East. Uh, this is around the year 400 to 500 B.C., or B.C.E., Virginia, as you taught us in Sunday school today. And it is not too long, a few generations removed from the exile, when all of the Jews in Jerusalem, at least, and in other places in Israel, were captured by the Babylonians and taken away to Babylon. And so since then, Jewish people have... have uh, dispersed throughout uh, this kingdom, and there are some, quite a few, in this capital city of Susa. And so it is uh, one of five megillas in the Old Testament, the Jewish canon, which are five scrolls of sacred text, and there is a celebration every year in the Jewish faith, one of the biggest ones, uh, in which this whole entire story is read aloud to the synagogues. And whenever the, the enemy or the bad person in this story, whom you will learn very well, his name is Haman's name is spoken, the kids will stomp their feet and they will yell and they will make noises in synagogue as if to say God is good because God helped us to overcome evil Haman. This story of Esther is one of salvation because it talks about God saving his people throughout the Persian Empire in a moment of, of great peril, in a moment when annihilation was at hand, when genocide was getting ready to happen, a, um, an old version, if you will, of, of a holocaust. It's a story of divine providence in which God's will and, and God's purpose reigns supreme at the very end of it, but it is riveting all the way through and you don't quite know that it's going to happen unless you've read it before till you get to the end. And most of all, most of all, this story of Esther is one of great courage because a young girl, 14 years old, we think, becomes the queen of a great nation by, by just a series of, of what seem coincidences. And in the great moment in which she is given, surrounded by the right people, influencing her in the right place at the right time, she, through the abilities and gifts God's given to her, and through her great courage and bravery, 
stands up, speaks out, and saves all of her people, God's people, throughout the kingdom. So I hope that you're as inspired as I am by this story. And if you still aren't clear on what I'm talking about, go home today. Ten chapters, you can read it in in an hour's time. But today I want to talk about the first couple of chapters and just mention two things and read some of the verses. And the first of those two things is that God is working in messy situations all of the time. That's right, messy situations, and I'm not talking about clutter in rooms. I'm not talking about cars that need to be cleaned out. I'm not talking about storage rooms down in the basement of a church that have been piling up stuff for for years. I'm talking about the messes of life that we find ourselves in, where for whatever reason, maybe we caused it, maybe no fault of our own, maybe just forced upon us, we have to deal with with hardship and heartache and difficulty in life. And it is, it is difficult when we feel that God has abandoned us. Even in our messes, God is at work behind the scenes doing great things, working for our good, if we will have the faith to believe that. Now, a very fascinating fact, I would say the most interesting fact about the book of Esther of all is this, that not one time in this entire Ten chapters is the name of God mentioned. Can you imagine that? Ten chapters, a book of the Bible, and God's name doesn't even get a a postscript or anything. It's just not mentioned at all. I find that fascinating, don't you? Was it oversight, maybe, that somebody forgot to write it in as they were putting down the story? I mean, God's people, the Jews, are mentioned without ever mentioning their God. This book of Esther um, has throughout it uh, evidences of God, and yet the name is never mentioned there. You would think, wouldn't you, that all of the, the early Christian fathers that got together to decide on which books got into our Bible and which didn't, and I'm talking 16, 1700 years ago, that they would have said, you know what, this book doesn't even have God in it. It has no reason to be in the Bible. And yet it's in the Jewish canon. It's in our Bible as well. Why is that? That God's name is not in it. And yet, we still are here talking about it as God's word today. Well, it seems that God is in it. We just can't see him. God's hand is moving throughout this story to put Esther in the right place at the right time to put people around her to influence and inspire her, to give her the courage when she needs it to speak up, blindly, silently, behind the scenes, providentially, God's hand is moving through this story, and I think that's why it's included in our Bible. Because you and I need to hear that in the messiness of life, that God is still in it, though we may not see him, or may not sense evidence of God. I mean, life can get really bad, right? Yeah, things can get really hurt, hurtful and difficult and challenging. Yeah, it's a um, messy world we live in, generally. But we all have our challenges, and sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we forget that God is with us. Sometimes, because our attention's not gotten by God, we forget. And we think that God's not real. 
but he is. You want to hear a messy situation? Let me give you a little backstory to Esther and, and what world she's living in and the situation that she's thrown into, 14-year-old girl that she is. It is a great superpower of an empire, as I said, and it is a doggy dog world even more than it is today. And King Xerxes is, is a tyrant of a king. This is not, though, though she becomes Esther, queen of a great kingdom, this is not a Disney fairy tale story that at the end the prince in shining armor is going to show up and everything's going to be rosy and the music's going to play and the credits are going to roll and you're going to go, hmm, how beautiful. But you're going to see that God's hand is in it and that God is great and powerful and wonderful. King Xerxes was his name. And King Xerxes was a man, a, a maniacal king that was narcissistic. He had unending wealth. He, he could say whatever he wanted and it had to happen. He could put people to death without any good reason. And it just so happens the opening scene of the story is a six-month celebration that he's throwing. And he's inviting people into the great palace there in the citadel of Susa. The commoners even get to come. Uh, among the, the great palace. And he wants them to see what it is that he has in there. And he also, um, he also throws a, a week-long celebration for all of the great people. Unlimited wine and drink, it says. Let me share with you the lavishness of this party. And keep in mind that this is a party that is celebrating himself. For 180 days, in verse 4 of chapter 1, Xerxes displayed a vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty, it says. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. And in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, uh, from the least of the greatest who were in that citadel of Susa. And the gardens had hanging of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings, on marble pillars, and there were couches of gold, and silver of a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And his queen, Vashti, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. And so you see the scene. It is an, an adoration of himself. And he's surrounding himself with guys that, that are telling him how great he is. And people are oohing and nine at his house. And, and there's a week long of drinking and a partying and going on. And the men are separated from the women in his man cave. And it just sets the scene to be a bad situation. And it is. Listen to, to what he does next. And this will be known, or probably was known throughout this Persian empire as the Vashti incident for years to come. He, on the seventh day it says, verse 10 through 12, on the seventh day when King Xerxes was high in spirit from wines, he commanded the seven eunuchs who were with him, and I'm not going to read their names because I can't pronounce them, all right? But there's seven of them. 
to bring before him Queen Vashti, his queen, wearing nothing more than her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was very lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command for Vashti, she refused to come, and the king became furious and burned with anger. And so do you hear what's going on here? That the king is taking supposedly the greatest love of his life and treating her as, as one of his possessions, as an object for other people to ooh and ah? Nothing more than her crown publicly in front of his guy friends? Wow. If you ever want to worship yourself like Xerxes did, if you ever think that you should spend everything you have through a party so people can tell you how great you are and how wonderful you are, know that you're going to a bad place if you're the center of your own and everyone else's attention. Wow, this, uh, this is a line that Vashti would not cross. And there's the first sign of courage and bravery we see in this story. A queen that would say no to a king. That plain and simple was going to humiliate her in order to adore himself. To objectify people. To, to say mean, hateful, ugly things about them. To put them on public display. Can you imagine anything more humiliating than that? Queen Vashti said no. And how do you think that went over? Not very well, not very well at all. If it weren't bad enough to Queen Vashti, her, her Katniss Everdeen thing of standing up against President Snow to, to put her fist up in the air and put her foot down, he says, well, fine, if you're not going to do what I say, then off with you. And so not only does he divorce her, but he publicly passes an edict, a law in that day, that says that any woman that disobeys her husband about anything, anything, the same should happen, would happen to her as well. And so he got his humiliation of the love of his life. And what it tells us about this evil man is just the beginning, but it's in and of itself terrible. Well, all of this is to say that it was a messy situation in Susa. And lo and behold, in addition to divorcing Queen, as, uh, Queen Vashti as his wife, he sets off on having a, a great beauty pageant. Now imagine the wealth and the, the vast, I'm talking 127 provinces of, of countries uh, from India to, to the far west from there. Imagine how many beautiful women he could find to try to choose as his next wife. He has a year-long beauty pageant. He invites women and girls, really, younger, much younger than Vashti, to come and enter into a program. Think the Bachelor TV show, if you will. A year of beauty treatments and prepping. And each of them has one interview, one time, one night with the king. And from that, he decides which one can be so privileged to be in his presence as his queen. And somehow this young Jewish girl, among all the others 
of different varying religions and places in that kingdom, this girl whose Jewish name was Hadassah was in the mix and called up to be a part of the beauty pageant. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, but, but Esther was her, her name in Persia. And it's forever we'll remember her as Esther because she became queen of that great land. A little bit about her. She lived with her uncle Mordecai, and we think that he had come from Jerusalem during the exile some years before, but he was raising her, one of his cousins, because her mother and father, family members of her, had died before leaving her orphan. Young orphaned girl in a minority group in a, in a great country, and and swept up and called up because of her beauty and because of her ability, we'll later see, is put in a place where she gets to meet the king. She catches his eye. Lo and behold, she moves up through the ranks, the sorting order, if you will, as if, as if King Xerxes is placing bets on horses because women were like that for him. And lo and behold... Esther is chosen as the queen. It's an unlikely, it's an impossible thing that could ever happen. And yet somehow in it all, she was placed in the royal palace for a special purpose and a special reason for a particular time in history that we will look at uh, next week and especially the week after. For today, I want you to hear that no matter how messy the situation it may seem that you are in, as messy as her situation might have seemed to her, God is working in it. If you have belief and faith enough to know that God's hand is in it, in the end, at the closing chapter of your story, of your difficulty, God will be there and will deliver you as well. And the second thing that I want to mention today is that God has not forgotten us. Now, I'm sure that the Jewish people there in, in that great city of Susa and across the, the empire that had been <coughs> spread out, tossed out from their homeland of Israel, cast away from their destroyed temple of Jerusalem, felt a great sense of, of loneliness and alienation, of being away from home for all that time. They lost their identity of who they were. They clung to it. They thought that God had forgotten them because they believed God allowed for the imposing powers to come and to, to carry them off like they did. Do you sometimes wonder if God's forgotten you? Sometimes wonder if, if God is even there or even cares about you? Even if you, you don't believe that God is at work in your situation, do you know that God is there, is here? is here, is with you each and every day of your life. Feel that. Reach out to that in prayer. Ask God to reveal that to you because it's very lonely in this world to think that we have to carry all of our burdens alone and that it's up to us to make right the things that have been done wrong. There is a, a study that was done a few years ago through Brigham Young University. And it talks about how one of the growing health risks in America today 
in addition to uh, obesity and in addition to substance abuse, and we hear a lot about those in the news, is that of loneliness. Brigham Young University researchers did, did a study about uh, different people in different living situations, and they found, which probably is not a huge surprise for us all, that Americans are more and more lonely as years go on. We're better connected. We have more friends on social media. We, we can communicate by phone and text easily with people, but we have less meaningful, significant relationships in our lives than we did even 25 years ago. And the loneliness is literally killing us. Literally killing us. Um, mortality risk, they cited say that um, for people that live alone and that have no connection with any social group, mortality risk is, is from 29 to 32%. Can you imagine that? And that mortality risk means ending life sooner. We live in a time when, when we are programmed for loneliness to live our own life and to be all on our own an island. And yet, the seriousness of the threat of that seeks to undo us. That, that's dark stuff, to fall lonely and feel alone all together. And if you're like me, sometime before you've been around other people and you've still felt a sense of loneliness, right? Because there's a hole in us that needs to be filled by, by one thing and one thing alone. Other people are important. And time with them builds us up, but we need God in our lives and in our hearts. And when we don't believe that he's there and we don't think that his eye is on us, we feel awfully, awfully alone. So know that God is, is with us today, even though he may not be evident in your own situation. I want to close today with a picture illustration. And uh, the first picture I've got up there, Lane. Yeah, look at this picture for a minute. I saw this on the internet. It caught my eye. Do you see this picture? I saw it and I thought, oh my God, I wonder if that was like the truck driver's last moments in this world. Do you see what I mean? I mean, I don't know if someone took that while he was driving up uh, to go up over the bridge and, and he just, where it ends, drove off and crashed into a heap of rubble and explosion at the bottom of it. I, I was alarmed, so I had to do a little bit of research. You know how you dig around on the Internet and, you know, uh, you say, you know, Siri, uh, where is this picture taken? Or you dig around a little bit more to find another one like it to see where it is. And I thought to myself, I hope that the tragedy that I think occurred did not occur in that picture. And so I found... And I was much relieved to find uh, another picture of, of that same place in Norway. It's a bridge that goes up over a fjord there that takes people and goods and all of that across the water to the other side. Do, do you see here that, that it's just a different perspective that helps you to see what, what really is and, and how the situation really looks from, from a higher point of view. Go to the next one, Elaine, and, and it's a comparison. The top one is, is from lower down, and it looks tragic. 
and treacherous and deadly, doesn't it? And at the bottom, a little bit higher, from a little bit different angle, we see that, that the bridge does not just end and that it's not a death trap, but it is a way, it is a, an avenue, if you will, to the other side. And I want to say with that illustration today that life is a lot like that. Our perspective of the way things are in this world are not always as they seem, is it? We don't see things face-to-face as God sees them. We don't see things from a higher perspective, a heavenly perspective, as God does. Sometimes in our own situation, we get stuck. And we see the tragedy and the, the hurt and the ugliness and the messiness of it all. And if we will just have faith and trust and believe that God is with us and that we are not alone, we will be, be given a great reward of knowing that his presence and peace is with us uh, as he uh, brings us to, to the place he would have us to go. So today I want us to, to know and to hear and to pray about as we close that, that like for Esther, God is doing great things in our lives and among us and even in our messes. Let's bow our heads together.